When I was a young child, there were a lot of things that I wanted. But there was only one thing that I really wanted. It was a lightsaber. <laughs> Now, in the first service, uh, one of my friends, a little bit older gentleman, came up, thought I said lifesaver. Uh, And he gave me one. <laughs> This is great. I'm very happy for it. I had lots of lifesavers when I was a child. What I wanted was a lightsaber. You know, the sort of Star Wars lightsabers. And I had in my mind, you know, all my problems would be solved if I could just have a lightsaber. If you don't know what a lightsaber is, just think of the coolest thing you can possibly think of and then go beyond that. That's a lightsaber. And I thought what I would do with this. Well, if I had a lightsaber, I would carry it with me everywhere. I would never let it out of my sight. I would hold on to it constantly. Yes, I might have one of those cool belt things you could hang it on, but it would always be with me. I would sleep with it, and if friends wanted to see it, yes, they could look at it from a distance. But this was never going to leave my possession. I would even find some way to sneak it into church with me. I mean, after all, a Jedi is never separated from his lightsaber. And so I had these great visions of of my lightsaber and what I would do with it and how I would treasure it and what I would take care of it. Well, perhaps it's because of my sort of love and dreams of having my own lightsaber that there is a scene that when I watch the Star Wars movies absolutely drives me up the wall. It makes me crazy. Now, it has nothing to do with Ewoks or Jar Jar Binks or even the fact that there are two Death Stars. I mean, really. Two? <laughs> Couldn't we have come up with a new idea? It has nothing to do with any of those. It's actually a scene from near the end of Return of the Jedi. In just a minute, I'm going to show you the scene. Now, it's a little bit, it was scary, so we had to kind of cut it down so it's not scary. I don't think anybody is going to be scared by this. But in order to do that, I got to set up the, the clip for you because it might not make a whole lot of sense if you just see it plain. This is a scene near the end of the movie where Luke Skywalker, who's sort of the hero, is fighting against Darth Vader, and they're having this duel between the two of them. And Luke actually wins the duel, and the way we know he wins is he doesn't kill Darth Vader, but he does cut off his mechanical hand. And that's sort of symbolic because uh, Vader had cut off Luke's hand in an earlier movie, and there was sort of this cosmic, I don't know, karma thing or whatever. Both of people have lost hands, so now Luke's the winner. So, <clears throat> but this scene happens. And the emperor, who is the personification of evil, he's the sort of Satan figure, pure evil. This is all happening in front of him, and he's watching this go on. And so we're going to pick up the scene just after Luke has won his victory. And I want you to watch what he does with his lightsaber. Okay, run the clip. He threw it away. Now, every time I watch it, I think, what are you doing? A Jedi never, ever, ever throws away his lightsaber. Now, look, now there's going to be some Star Wars people here who are going to come up and they're going to say, well, you know, he was taking the higher road and he was giving up himself. No, 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 no. You never let it go. You always have your lightsaber with you. And the idea that you would sort of give yourself up to the Emperor, why? Why, this guy's evil. I mean, after Luke says to him, I am a Jedi, and he throws away his lightsaber, 
It's not like the emperor packs up his bags and goes home. He basically says, okay, fine, you're a Jedi, now I'm gonna kill you. And you're thinking to yourself, hey, Luke, you had something in your hand that would have protected you that you could have used. We learned from earlier Star Wars movies that he could have fought off the emperor with his lightsaber, but instead he throws it away. Now again, yes, I get that there's a happy ending. I understand that. But I'm thinking to myself, don't throw away your lightsaber. You don't have to die here. You could actually defend yourself. You could actually strike down the emperor. That would be good. Or worst case scenario, just leave, leave with your lightsaber <laughs> and go see your friends. I mean, come on, who does this? Now I'm getting all worked up about this, but <laughs> perhaps one of the reasons that scene frustrates me no end is because in many ways, it actually is what we do as Christians. You see in the clip, the emperor who is that sort of hooded figure, he represents Satan. And Satan is pure evil. No good in him whatsoever. There's no redeemable quality. It's not like Darth Vader. There's no redeemable quality in the emperor. There's no redeemable quality in Satan. And sometimes we as Christians, we stand before him and say, I am a Christian. And we throw away our sword and we think that the declaration that we're a Christian is going to rescue us. When the truth of the matter is, what the emperor says to Luke is, is okay, fine, you're a Jedi, big deal. If you're not going to serve me, I'm going to kill you. That's how Satan feels. When we stand before him and confidently declare, I am a Christian, he basically is not gonna pack his bags and go home. He's not going to retire. He's not going to say, oh, you're a Christian, nothing I can do now. He's going to say, look, if you will not serve me, I'm going to kill you. But the good news is that God has given us a sword. He's actually given us a weapon for this fight. But sometimes in our naivete, we toss the sword away and we think our declaration of being a Christian is going to save us. The Bible says that's not how it works. That God has given us a sword and he wants us to hold on to that sword and he wants us to use that sword and that sword can actually rescue us. And that when we're face to face with the evil one, as long as we're holding the sword God has given to us, we're gonna do just fine. I wanna talk about that sword today. Take your Bible, if you will, and turn to Ephesians chapter six. Ephesians chapter six, it's page 830 in the Bibles that the church provides. First one there, stand up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry. Just kidding. <laughs> Pastor Joel never mentioned anything about tabs. You know, anybody have tabs in their Bible when they did the sword drill? Oh, yeah. Maybe it was just me. I went to a Baptist church, so we cheated. Um, <laughs> Ephesians chapter 6. This summer, we're wrapping up our series on spiritual warfare. 
and simply define spiritual warfare as the recognition that every Christian, every single moment of every single day is in the middle of a battle. That we have an enemy, he's not made out of flesh and blood, he is the evil one, he is Satan, and he has at his disposal hordes of demonic forces that are aligned against us. And spiritual warfare is the recognition that there's no place that we go and there's nothing that we do in which the truth of the fact that we are at war is irrelevant. It's always relevant. And we've been looking together at the armor that God has given us so that we can stand in the midst of this battle, this very real war. We've talked together about five pieces of the armor so far, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel boots of community, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, and this morning we look at the last piece mentioned in Ephesians chapter six. Look in verse number 17. Take the helmet of salvation, and here's the last piece, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit. We have up here a replica of what a Roman sword would have looked like. That's pretty cool, actually. <laughs> so kids, if you want to come see this afterwards, that's fine. There's no sharp edges. Uh, but just come with an adult, if you will. Uh, but yeah, this is pretty sweet. Come see it. But it's a sword. And it's designed to look like the kind of sword that Paul probably had in mind when he's writing Ephesians 6. Now, when he mentions the sword, all of a sudden his discussion of our armor takes a turn. Up until this point, every piece that he has discussed has been primarily defensive in nature. A breastplate, a shield, a helmet, these things are designed to protect us. They are defensive pieces of armor. With the sword, the discussion now goes in a slightly different direction. A sword can be used defensively, but it is not primarily a defensive weapon. The sword is primarily an offensive weapon. And up till this point, God has been describing our defensive means by which we can withstand Satan's attacks. But now he tells us, but you also have a sword. And the sword is for going on the offensive. Now a sword, it doesn't mean by this that we get to kill Satan. That's not what we're talking about here. But what we're talking about is the fact that with the sword you can actually drive him back that you can actually push him back. Because after all, if you've ever been through spiritual warfare, you know that constantly absorbing blow after blow after blow from Satan can wear you down. That it's wonderful to have a helmet. It's great to have a shield. It's great to have a breastplate. But at some point to repeatedly take blows to the head or to the heart or to the shield will beat us down. And so God says, but the good news is, I've given you a sword with which you can drive back your enemy. Now, the sword is also different from the other pieces in the sense that when we say shield of faith, we mean that faith is the shield. 
When we say helmet of salvation, we mean that salvation is the helmet. The helmet is salvation. Breastplate of righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness that is our breastplate. The sword of the spirit works differently. It's not that the spirit is the sword. In fact, to make that clear, Paul's going to tell us exactly what the sword is. But it is called the sword of the spirit. What does that mean? Well, it means that it is the spirit who gives the sword its cutting edge. The spirit is the one who empowers the sword so that it can accomplish things. That it is the sword wielded under the power of the spirit that makes it effective. That it's not just a sword. It's a sword guided, empowered, and sharpened by the Spirit of God. So what is the sword of the Spirit? Well, Paul tells us very clearly, so there's no mistaking it. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is the sword that the Spirit uses to beat back our enemy. Now, the Word of God is the Bible. But interestingly, the word that Paul uses for word more normally is used for the spoken word. That what Paul has in mind here is the spoken word of God. That the idea is is that when we simply quietly meditate on God's word in our mind, that's great. But that really is more associated with the belt of truth. That we are thinking about truth, that we're meditating on truth, and that's very helpful. But the problem is, well, it's not a problem, it's a good thing. Satan cannot read our minds. You understand that? He's not God. He has no access to your inner thoughts unless you give him access. He has no access to what we're thinking. Therefore, if we are engaged in combat with him and merely think scripture, it has no real effect offensively against him because he doesn't know what we're thinking. I have sat in my office with people who have been under demonic oppression or have been experiencing spiritual warfare in a very unique sort of way. And in the midst of the conversation, I have in my mind thought through relevant scriptures that I want to say, but while I'm thinking them, nothing happens. It has no effect whatsoever on what's going on. Now, it's it's a blessing to me personally, because it's the belt of truth, but it has no effect on the person that I'm interacting with. But once you say them out loud, once you begin to speak those scriptures, something very real does happen. This is one of the ways, one of the signs to recognize when somebody is under demonic oppression, is that the spoken word of God will have some sort of effect on them, physically, emotionally, some effect, either positive or negative. It will not ever be neutral. That's Paul's point, that it is the spoken word of God that is the sword of the Spirit, that as the Spirit moves in our hearts and minds and we speak the truth of God from His Word, that it is that spoken Word that is the sword 
that we use to drive back the one who is attacking us. Now, how does that work? How do you actually use God's word in the middle of battle? How do you actually swing the sword? How do you actually put this into practice? Well, let me give you three scenarios in which we can demonstrate how to use the sword of the spirit. And for these, normally we put the passages up on the screen. Today, I want to turn to them simply because we're talking about the word of God and it's nice, as Pastor Joel said, to be familiar and to turn. So for the first, would you turn to Matthew chapter four? Turn over to Matthew four. Page 683 in the church Bibles, Matthew 4. The first scenario in which we use the sword of the Spirit is when Satan is directly attacking us. When Satan is directly attacking us, and the example in Matthew 5 is Jesus being tempted by Satan. Now, it's not that Jesus was only tempted at this one point. But somehow in this temptation, Satan is attacking him in a unique way. And in the middle of this assault by Satan, Jesus doesn't just sit there and take it. He responds. Three times he responds aloud with the word of God. This is what we mean when we say using the spoken word of God to drive back the evil one. Satan has come against Jesus in a powerful way and in the midst of this temptation, Jesus continues to respond with God's word. Look at the last interaction, verse number 10. Jesus said to Satan, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now it's interesting, if you look at the previous two interactions, Jesus doesn't say away from me, Satan, he simply quotes the scripture. But now by the third interaction, you can kind of feel him driving Satan back. And he says, get lost, Satan. And he quotes him the word of God and then verse 11, then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Now it's not like Satan just sort of got tired. It's what we're talking about in Ephesians 6, that Jesus is wielding the sword of the Spirit. And the battle is going back and forth. And finally, sort of at the end, Jesus is driving him away. Now, it's interesting to note that it's not the first time Jesus cites and quotes Scripture aloud that Satan flees. That instead, what I sort of envision in my mind is sort of like a sword fight. That Satan attacks and Jesus counterattacks. And this goes back and forth until finally Jesus drives him away. And it's not the first time that we quote scripture aloud that Satan goes running for the hills. But at some point, the spoken word of God will force him to retreat. Now, it's not that Jesus is done interacting with Satan. It's not that Satan's never going to attack him again. We don't get to kill Satan but you can drive him back. You can drive him away. And that when Satan attacks us personally through temptation, through accusation, <clears throat> through anxiety, through worry, through doubt, through fear, when you feel that attack from the evil one, what this story is saying to us is that the spoken word of God is powerful and effective to drive him back. 
It may not happen the first time you begin to speak Scripture. But the promise is, is as you begin to wield the sword of the Spirit under the Spirit's guidance and direction, it will be effective and helpful in our battle against Satan. And instead of just absorbing blow after blow after blow, that the sword of the Spirit actually has the ability to drive him back. The first scenario then is when we are being personally attacked by Satan and you feel that. The sword of the Spirit is very useful for driving Satan away. Second scenario, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's page number 818. 2 Corinthians 4. The second scenario in which the word of God, the spoken word of God, is very powerful and effective in spiritual warfare is when Satan is blinding the minds of unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 4, I'm going to begin in verse 1. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the what? The Word of God. That's what we're talking about here, the Word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, now that's actually a reference to Satan. Paul's referring to Satan right there with that phrase. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, and here's a quote from the scriptures, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now here's what Paul's saying. Those who are not yet believers in Jesus, the reason why they're unable to see is because the God of this world, Satan, has the power to deceive them and blind their minds. So Paul says, what are you supposed to do in that kind of situation? Well, he says, what we do is we don't go around talking about ourselves, or we don't go around talking about nice things going on in life. We present the word of God and we preach Christ. And when that happens, we beat Satan back. That wielding the sword of the spirit in that way causes Satan to retreat so that some people who are not believers can see and come to faith. This is why the idea that sharing the gospel without using words, that doesn't make any sense. Yes, it's true that our lives can point to the truthfulness of the gospel. Yes, it is that our good deeds can help people. Yes, it is that our character is important. But at the end of the day, if Satan is blinding their eyes, the only thing that will drive him back, the only thing is the word of God. And then until we actually say the words, Jesus is Lord, that he died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried and raised from the dead according to the scriptures, until we actually say the word of God, he's going to continue to keep people blinded to the truth of the gospel. But when we share those words, 
we are drawing our sword and the spirit uses the sword to drive him back so that this person who is not a believer can have a chance to see. This is why apologetics don't save anyone. They're good and they're useful, but to sit down with a non-Christian and go through all the different kinds of manuscripts that we have for the New Testament or to give scientific evidence as to why there must have been a universal flood, that's all fine, but that stuff's not going to drive Satan back. This is why if you have somebody who doesn't believe, it seems you can give them every rational argument that you could possibly think of and doesn't do any good. What's happening is, is the enemy has his hand over their eyes. And as useful as those apologetic arguments can be, especially for Christians, when it comes to non-Christians, it's only the spoken word of God that can begin to drive Satan away that will cause them to see. This is why if you have a friend who's not yet a believer and you give them a Bible, that's good. And ask them to read it on their own, that's great. But it's better if you sit down with them and read it with them and explain it to them. After all, if I have a friend who's being pounced on by a lion, it's nice if I hand him a sword. It's better if I draw the sword and use it to drive the lion away. When you invite your non-Christian friend to church, that's what's happening here is that we are drawing the sword of the Spirit and under the power of the Spirit, God's spoken word is being proclaimed and it has the power to drive Satan back so that they can see. Just last week, we had a person come to faith under the preaching of the word. That's what's supposed to happen. This is why when you sit down with your friend and you're not sure how to share the gospel, invite them to just read the Bible with you. Read it aloud to them. Talk about what it means. And as you do that, what you're doing is you're driving Satan back through the discussion of the word of God. So that's the second scenario in which we are to draw our sword, to use it against the evil one, to drive him back is when he's blinding the minds of unbelievers. There's a third scenario. Turn over to Revelation chapter two. Revelation chapter two, it's page 868. The third time in which we are to draw our sword and to use it to drive away our enemy is when he has taken Christians captive to his will. Revelation 2, look in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. We're talking about Jesus and the fact that he has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, Jesus says. Where do they live? where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, Jesus says, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the what? The sword of my mouth. 
He's talking here about the spoken word of God. And here's what's going on in the city of Pergamum. For whatever reason, where this city was located, there was satanic strongholds there. Whether it was because of occult practices or because of the influence of the Roman Empire, whatever was going on, the spiritual warfare was especially strong in the city of Pergamum. That's why Jesus keeps saying, look, you're right in the heart of the battle. You have your church right in the middle of the teeth of the enemy. And he says, look, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you that you're standing strong. I'm proud of you that you've not given up. I'm proud of you you still have your shield of faith up. He says, but there's a problem that in this Christian church, there are a few Christians, genuine believers in Jesus, who've been influenced by the culture around them in such a way that Satan has hold of their hearts, that somehow greed and sexual immorality had pervaded some of the people in the church. And when they lowered their breastplate of righteousness, Satan had used this greed and sexual immorality to grab hold of their hearts and was in control. And Jesus says, look, you got two choices. One is you go to them and drive Satan away. How? The spoken word of God. Teach them the story of Balaam and Balak from the Old Testament. That's what this is about, is a person who so badly wanted money that he was willing to sell blessings and cursings in order to get money. A prophet of God willing to do that. Jesus says, go tell them that story because when you teach them the word of God, it will drive Satan from their hearts. Or if you won't do it, Jesus says, I'll come do it. But he'll use the same means a word of judgment, but because it's spoken by Jesus, it is the sword of the Spirit, and it will be effective for driving Satan back. You see, sometimes we see a friend, a fellow believer in Jesus who's made some poor choices, and all of a sudden Satan comes into their life and seems to be in control of everything that's going on and seems to have rooted himself so deeply in who they are. We can begin to lose hope and say, How are we ever going to get Satan out of their life? And Jesus is saying to us, look, there is a way. There is a sword. You kind of have in mind somebody who's been hit by one of Satan's arrows on the battlefield. And a friend comes over with the sword of the spirit and digs the arrow out. Now, it's going to hurt. But it'll save their life. And the good news is somebody who's been struck down by Satan doesn't have to be fatally wounded that you and I have been given the sword of the Spirit. Remember, the Word of God is not only good for doctrine and training and righteousness, it's also good for correction and for rebuke. Nobody, nobody likes to be corrected and nobody likes to be rebuked. But Proverbs says the wounds of a friend are far better than the kisses of an enemy is that when Satan has grabbed hold of a friend of ours, of a a family member, of somebody who we love in the Lord, when Satan has hold of them and it looks like there's no hope, God's saying there is hope. Get in there with your sword and cut him out. Now do it in love. Remember, it's the sword wielded under the power of the spirit of love. And when we speak the truth in love, we are told that even if Satan is all the way into the bones of the person, that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it can pierce all the way in to divide between bones and marrow, between soul and spirit. There is nothing, there is no way that Satan can resist the power of God's word wielded by God's spirit. And that when all hope is gone and you think our enemy has advanced too far, 
There's no way to get him out of the church. There's no way to get him out of the person. There's no way to get him out of my life or out of this situation. God says, no, I've given you a sword. I've given you the sword of the Spirit. And when wielded under the power of the Spirit, Satan cannot stand against it. He may not leave the first time you speak the scripture. He's not going to leave forever. But the promise of God is when you wield this sword, you're no longer simply absorbing blow after blow after blow. You can drive him back. You can drive him away from ourselves, from a non-Christian who's blinded, from a Christian who's been taken captive by Satan to do his will. So what are we supposed to do with this teaching? Well, like I said at the beginning, too often we as Christians are like Luke Skywalker from that clip. We stand before Satan and announce to him, you failed. I am a Christian. And irreverently we toss away (laughs) the sword of God. We leave it sitting dusty on our shelves. It's an unused app on our smartphones. For many of us here, we could tell you the value of our 401k by memory, but couldn't quote a single verse the Bible has to say about money or greed. For a lot of us here, we could give you from memory the name of every character on the television show Bones, but couldn't quote anything about anxiety or worry that the Bible has to say. For some of us, we sit down with our children and had one conversation with them when they were 10 years old about sexual immorality and think that that's going to protect them from what Satan's going to try to do with them in that area instead of realizing it's the constant every day going through and discussing the word of God. That will provide them with some level of protection. Not some talk about the birds and the bees when they're 10 years old. Many of us are in small groups that have read every single possible good Christian living book that you could read and haven't ever read the Bible together. That too often as Christians we have taken this attitude and thrown away our sword. And Satan's looking at us and saying, if you're not going to serve me, I'm going to kill you. What God says is pick up that sword. Because with that sword in your hand, you're safe. You can drive him back. You know, a lightsaber is an extension of a Jedi's arm because he practices with it, because he knows everything about it, because he sleeps with it, because he eats with it, because it's always with him. It's basically like an extension of his arm and God is saying, that's what my word is to be for you, that when you meditate on it, when you memorize it, when you study it, when you discuss it, when you listen to it preach, when you absorb it over and over again, the sword of the spirit is in your hand and it's constantly available and if suddenly you find yourself in a sneak attack from Satan, you're already equipped, you're already prepared, if you find yourself in the middle of a conversation with a non-Christian who's blinded to all of the rational arguments you give them, you have the word of God to share with them. If you come in contact with a believer who's been taken captive by Satan, you have already in your mind, in your heart, all the weapon you're ever going to need to set them free. And so as Christians, God's saying, take the sword of the spirit in your hand. And with it, stand against the evil one. Because he is the father of lies, he cannot exist where there is truth. He can't read our minds. But when you verbally speak the words of truth, he must flee. Let's pray together.
Lord, many of us as children dreamed of having swords of incredible power. How foolish we have been not to realize that you have given us a sword of infinite power. And that while we have <clears throat> dreamed about science fiction and fantasy and all of those sorts of things, that this is a sword based in reality. That it is powers beyond anything that we can imagine. The very word of God given to us that we might wield it under your grace and your power. God, I pray that those of us <clears throat> who have taken God's word lightly might reach down and pick up our sword again. That we might take it off the shelf, that we might open up that app, that we might begin to memorize and study it, that we might begin to equip ourselves with again. Lord, for those who are under the attack of Satan right now, I pray that this message would be an encouragement to them to know <clears throat> they don't have to continue to absorb blow after blow after blow, that there is a way to fight back. Lord, for those who are here this morning who are not yet believers, I pray, God, that as we discuss and pray and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, that you would drive Satan back so that they may see that in Christ our sins are forgiven and all, <clears throat> all of the penalties that you would exact from us have been paid for by him. Lord, for those who may be here who have loved ones who have been taken captive by Satan to do his will, I pray, Lord, that we would not lose hope, but instead we would pick up the sword of the Spirit and in love use it to remove Satan's fiery arrows. God, only when we get to heaven will we realize the power of the sword that you have given to us. Until that point in faith, we ask you to open our eyes that we might be able to see. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.